Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is Reasons to be Cheerful, live, please. Welcome to the stage, Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. That's a long walk on. It was a long walk Hello, hello. Hello, hey. Nice weather. Yeah, my first time in Hay as well. Is that right? Yes, you've been here before. I haven't been to this one before. I've Uh been to the other one. Oh, so I I was told there was no rivalry between the two festivals. (laughs) (laughs) What were you doing at the other one? Uh, I was interviewing President Nasheed of the Maldives because he was. Were you trying to get a free holiday? I was. No, no, no. That's that's you, mate. Uh, He um, he, his country was going underwater as a result of climate change. I wish I hadn't said that thing about the holiday. Now I know, I know. Yeah. And um, I was a climate change minister. Of course you were. I was talking to him about. Yeah. About all of that. Uh huh. So, what yeah. about you? No, 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 this is new. I mean, I'm, I'm not it's used a new to new experience. Being, yeah, I'm used to being at the type of festivals where people urinate into plastic glasses and then throw them. So, hopefully, we won't have any of that. That's the other one, there. isn't it? That's the other yeah. festival. <laughs> yeah. They do that. Yeah. They do that over there. Yeah. So, we've got a great reason to be cheerful this week uh, because we're interviewing Kate Rayworth, a fantastic author who's written a book called Donut Economics about how we should organise our economy in the post-crash era. And Kate is here, and we'll shortly be talking to her. And then after that, uh, we have a fantastic comedian who's going to come on and bring some ideas, which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Rachel Paris, over the last year, she's sort of blown up on the MASH report. She's gone She's blown viral. up Piers she's Morgan, had, yeah, I think, on the MASH report. Yeah, the gajillion views. Uh, but she's a great improviser and stand-up as well. And Rachel's going to be pitching some ideas. And, um, and we also... We asked you for your reasons yes, we to did. be cheerful, which, if you're wondering why I came on with a tote bag, that's it's why. Not, well, it's not our tote bag. That's why I'm wondering. Okay, the first one. All right, this is good. I like this one. Uh, my reason to be cheerful is I'm not as middle class as everyone else here, but I am as white as everyone else here, however. <laughs> I mean, whoever, there's a comic genius whoever said that. Who is that? 
Uh, you should be on the stage, honestly. That is really... That is really yeah, you're, oh, you're, next, turn, yeah. you're next, you're next, you're next. Okay. Uh, my race of cheerful is the stag do camped next to us have gone home. Oh, my God, that's a miserable... <laughs> you poor thing. Hey, did you have, did you have a stag do? I can it's see you on a stag do. It was quite... What did you do? Did you go to Prague? No. Blackpool? Mm, Led Buddy Conference videos, I think. <laughs> Um, <laughs> All right, we'll do one more and then we should, yeah. we should get on with it. Um... Uh, my reason to be cheerful, I've just been asked by a Harry Krishna monk what my secret is for looking so calm and at one with myself. That's mm. good, isn't it? Yeah. That wasn't you, was it? I, I'm not a Harry Krishna monk. Uh, <laughs> now, before we get into talking to Kate, which we're keen to do, we do our reasons to be cheerful, so you think we should do yours? Mine is, and I know this sounds like rabble-rousing, but I've just had the greatest experience with the NHS this week. Um, I've got a two-year-old son and he's had like an insanely high temperature the last couple of nights. So I've been ringing 111. My wife is from a long line of hypochondriacs. I'm a very anxious person. I mean, I'm, I promise you I'm not that big a drain on NHS resources, but we, we ended up going to the hospital and they were just wonderful with him. But my reason to be cheerful is that they now have a TV in the A&E waiting room and um, they were showing casualty in casualty, <laughs> which, was, which was very meta. So, so that's, that's yeah. So that's my reason to be cheerful. What's yours? Your son's okay. Just to sort of get yeah, to the sort of important yeah. part yeah. of the business. Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, my reason to be cheerful, and I think it really is a reason to be cheerful, is the Irish referendum vote on abortion, which I think is absolutely well. If you'd said twenty years ago that that was going to happen, people would have said it was completely impossible. Two thirds uh, of the people of Ireland voted uh, to make abortion legal. And uh, I think it is an amazing result. I think it shows that uh, change can happen. And this is a sort of this sounds like a plug for our podcast, but it isn't completely a plug for our podcast. And in one interesting and slightly arcane point about this referendum is it came out of a process of a citizens' jury of 99 people in Ireland getting together, randomly selected, saying what was their priority for things that should be considered by the wider public. And one of them was same-sex marriage, uh, equal marriage, which went through two years ago, three years ago. And uh, another one was looking again at the the constitutional ban on abortion. Now, I'm not saying it happened because of this process that was set up, but this process is now enshrined in the Irish constitution that they have these 99 citizens who are selected to consider issues. Now, it's not binding on the government, but I think the fact that it is taking a particular role in the sort of politics of Ireland, is giving it legitimacy. And Jeff and I did this um, subject of what they call sortition. It's a terrible name. Someone's got to think of a better name for it, i.e. citizens' juries, in episode 20, I believe, um, of the podcast. And both of us went in real sceptics, didn't we? Yeah. Uh, This was really a runner. And we came out a lot more positive. It's been used in lots of places around the world. And I think the change in Ireland wouldn't have happened without the movement but maybe the movement would have had to have waited for longer if it hadn't been for this process that was introduced. Yeah. And now I think it should happen in Northern Ireland. And hopefully Parliament will vote for that. So that is a reason to be cheerful. Great. All right. We're going to move on. I'm delighted that Kate Raworth uh, is here. Kate has written a book, and I really recommend her, her book to you because it thinks about economics, subject some people find incredibly off-putting in a completely different way. Uh, it's called Donut Economics. We're going to ask her what her favourite donut is um, as part of our discussion. But please welcome Kate Rayworth, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. 
Pleasure. And just start off by telling us what the sort of basic idea of donut economics is. It's been, a, I should have said, it was long listed for the FT Business Book of the Year. It's done but incredibly not well. But should, I, well, I, it should have been shortlisted. <laughs> it's been translated into 10 languages, including Mandarin, I think. Yep. Um, tell us about the basic idea of the book. So the basic idea of the book is that the 21st century is quite different from the 20th and the ones that came before. So why would we imagine that the economic theories, from John Maynard Keynes to Adam Smith, to even to Hayek, to whoever you want to choose, they lived centuries ago. And they don't know the reality that we face, but we do. We know that we live on a complex, adaptive, dynamic, living planet on which all of our lives depend. And we are currently trying to meet the needs of all people while undermining the life-giving sources of this planet. I absolutely reckon if John Maynard Keynes were alive today and he saw what we know, that we are running down the living planet on which we depend, he'd be the first to roll up his John sleeves. Maynard Keynes, for the, who yeah, could you just sorry. explain? Big economist of the 20th century, underpinning the idea that we need to... to full employment, so really behind, actually, labour kind of policies. Um, he would say, you have a new understanding of the world that we depend upon. Are you still using my ideas I wrote in the 1930s? Do you have no ideas of your own? Adam Smith would say the same. All economists, I reckon, if they saw what we see today, they'd realise that the theories of the past are not up to the present. We need new theories that take on the challenges of our times. That's what I set to do in this book, to draw on actually ideas that have been around for many decades, from ecological economics, feminist economics, complexity, behavioural, institutional economics. Sound like big words, but actually... If I tell you the ideas, they're ideas that absolutely make sense to people. What are the missing things in traditional economics, then, that you've identified? So, OK, first of all, mainstream economics, if you ever do a class in economics, it sort of starts like this. Welcome to economics. Here is the market. We're going to learn about supply and demand. People are nodding their heads at me, right? Here's supply and demand. As if to say, first of all, the economy is the market and that the market's in equilibrium. That's two untruths in one sentence. And I don't think a smart place to begin a degree. So we need to start by recognising... The economy is in the living world, it's embedded in society, and it's not just the market, and it's not even just the market in the state, it's the household, where we all begin every day, unpaid caring work, it's the commons, where people co-create things they value, a lot of that goes on at a festival. What is prosperity? Again, in the, I think last century, the idea that prosperity, it's good enough to say that prosperity happens when GDP is growing, when the economy is getting bigger, that means we're all getting more prosperous. Actually, GDP growth is coming apart from prosperity, huge inequality opening up. So GDP might be rising, but the average person's wages. So this is a big part of your argument, isn't it? Yeah. Because I want to get you to the donuts. Oh, OK. You want I me to talk about donuts? Uh, the, the conventional view about economics is that success is measured by what people call growth. Yes. So more stuff being produced and more income being produced. Correct? Yeah, more goods and services yeah. sold in the economy. GDP goes up. And you're saying, no, we should think about the donut. Yes, so here's my reason to be cheerful. I can actually introduce you to the one donut that is going to be good for us. Okay. So you shouldn't eat donuts, the health warning, right? They're not really good for you, but this is the one that is. So imagine, I want everyone to imagine a big donut, the kind with a hole in the middle. And so in that hole is a place where people are left falling short on life's essentials. They don't have enough resources to have the food, healthcare, education, housing, income, political voice that every person in the world has a claim to having. So we want to get everybody out of the donut's hole into the donut itself. But, and there's a really big but. So forgive me, it's not a jam donut. It's, it's a not don a jam just, donut. I just want to no, just... Good you know, point. It's a donut with a sort of a hole a in it. A hole in it. It's yeah, a good okay. point. No, yeah, very sorry. important. Get yeah, that right. Yeah. No jam in this yeah, donut. Right. Or let, let's find the jam. Yeah, okay. okay. So <laughs> we want to get out of the hole in the middle. Yeah, yeah. But also you can't... So no one left falling short on the inside of the circle. 
But also we can't overshoot the outside because there humanity's collective use of resources starts to put so much pressure on this unique, living, delicately balanced planet that we start to kick it out of kilter. We cause climate breakdown. We create a hole in the ozone layer. Biodiversity loss. We acidify the oceans. And, and around the outside of the donut is what are called the nine planetary boundaries. They're these critical life-supporting systems that have, for the last 11,000 years, kept Earth in the incredible, benevolent, home-sweet-home state for humanity that all civilizations have thrived in. So when you put those two together, the donut diagram tells us it's like a compass for the 21st century to meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet. And that double-sided challenge was never seen in past generations, right? So John Maynard Keynes, meet the needs of all people, have a going economy, that will create full employment, people can meet their needs. It's the recognition that in the process of doing that, burning all the fossil fuels, converting the land, using fertilizers, we are actually destroying the processes of the planet and destabilizing our home. That's a completely other side of the story. With the donut as a compass, we need new economic ideas for how the heck we bring ourselves into that balance. That, now, that sounds a lot like it's about the environmental issue, and I think lots of people would agree with you that that is an issue, but, but your principles go much wider than that, don't they? Absolutely. It's not, just, it's not just that conventional economics ignored the environment, ignored climate change, ignored the, all of those destructive effects. It, it, goes, it goes well beyond that. It does. For me, that's just the starting point. It's this double-sided, meet the needs of all people within the means of the planet, because actually it totally challenges the way we've, thought about the way the economy works, the way we've created industries, uh, the kinds of role for government, and even the fundamentals of economics. So back in the 1870s, economists wanted to make economics a science. And so they looked to the science great of the day, Sir Isaac Newton. And so they literally tried to show that economics was like physics, right? They started talking about market forces, the market mechanism, the laws of supply and demand. You can hear Newtonian language in there. It was literally to mimic physics to make it look really scientific. It's the wrong kind of science. The economy is a complex system. It's ever-evolving with emergent properties, constantly adapting, booms and busts, cycles and dynamics. And when you move to that point of view, it not only changes what you think success looks like, it changes what you, kinds of policies you think governments should follow. So that's an, a crucial shift as well, away from kind of mechanical equilibrium to recognizing the complexity of the economy. And I think many governments around the world are only just beginning to try and embrace what it means like to take it in that way. And what does it mean? So first of all, you, you stop saying trust in markets, right? So the whole finan part of the financial crisis is because we trusted in markets. And markets will bring us into this equilibrium. No, they don't. Actually, markets have that inherent dynamism within them. So start from knowing that markets are dynamic. But also, I think when it comes to making policy... If the economy is constantly evolving, no one knows what's going to work until they've tried it. And I think this takes us towards experimentation in policy. And Finland is a country that is, has embraced this. Jeff loves Scandinavia. Do you? I well, do, you, can, yeah. you can take your holiday, not in the Maldives, but in he Finland. He used to have a home in Sweden. There we he go. He loves it that much. I did. Yeah. I had a relationship broke down. Well, anyway, anyway. <laughs> I had to sell it. Uh, okay, <laughs> that's, that, it up, that's for part two. Right. Someone, uh, someone in Finland is still weeping over you. But, yeah. but the Finnish government... Has Lots of people in Finland are weeping over you. ...created a, a, a department of experimentation. They've got about 27 policy experiments going on. The universal basic income, right, many people have heard. In Finland, they're trying it. Yeah. They're going to experiment with giving people personal carbon credits. If you use a bike... Your bike will be tracked, how far you bike, and then you get carbon credits, you can use it. 
don't yet know whether this works, but the idea is policies that experiment in different places. And if it fails, it's not a failure. It's something you learned. And I think that's actually going to require a real different kind of relationship between opposition parties that currently, certainly in this country, like to boo each other when something fell, and also in the media, how things get reported, because I think here in this country we have a really aggressive way of combatant politics that doesn't actually allow the recognition that we're trying things out in order to learn. And failure is not failure, it's a learning. So it actually has implications for how we do politics if we want to transform the way we do economics. What are the other countries that we should learn from? Is Finland the main one? No, but many of them point in that direction. So what else can we learn from? In terms of tackling climate change, I think Sweden has run ahead. Sweden has now introduced a law at the beginning of this year that by 2045, Sweden is going to be net zero carbon. So they're going to be a country that doesn't produce any greenhouse gas emissions. And they've written it into their law so that every year the government has to show that its policies are in line with this. To me, that's a good example of a long and legal, loud regulation that a government puts into place. It doesn't actually cost them budget today, but it's sending a big signal to industry, to transformation in the country. And this is sort of something that some people will know we did in this country, 80% reductions. I think you're completely right, we should go further. We need to go further, yeah. 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 So so the UK led back in 2008. Sweden have now picked up the leadership. Um, Other examples, uh, I think... So I think we need to rebalance, recognising that essential to the economy is not just the market and the state, the household, the space of parental care. So I've just been in Sweden and Finland, so I'm a little bit influenced by them, but they have parental leave of 18 months. And you can divvy that up between the parents, but, it, but both parents must take at least three months. And to make that work, uh, you also need a culture, which means that men aren't embarrassed to take parental leave. It doesn't mean you're a wuss and you're not really committed to your job, but actually you're committed to your family. And I was asking people there, I was asking men there, they said, no, it's completely normal, this is what we do. That, that culture has shifted, recognising that a lot of our well-being comes from within the home. And a lot of a person's deep security in life actually comes from those early years of investment and care from parents. So making space and, and creating cultural change to recognise that. I think who wrote economics has a real implication for what was seen and what wasn't seen. Adam Smith, right, way back in the 1770s, wrote this famous book called The Wealth of Nations. And it's always referred to by people to say that the market is this great institution. Adam Smith, the father of market thinking. So he wrote this sentence in his book, which is, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, and the breaker that we expect our dinner, but it's their regard to their own interest. He's saying, you know, we get our dinner on the table because markets work, because we get our beer and our bread and our beef, because the markets are working and delivering it. Comic factor here, Smith was 43 when he wrote this book, right? He was unmarried, no wife to tend to him, no children to worry about. He moved back home with his mum to write this book. (laughs) So... Was he an incel? Was it what? An incel. <laughs> like these sort of weird guys on the internet who are very angry and live Ooh, with their mother. Man, they didn't a, have the internet in those days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But if they had... But just imagine, as Adam's writing this sentence, you know, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer and the baker where they get our dinner, but from their regard to their own... Imagine if at that moment his mum is like, Adam, dinner's on the table! <laughs> you know, the, he could have invented feminist economics at that moment. thought, oh my God, it's not just from the benevolence of those guys in the market. It's from the unpaid, caring work of my mum. 
well, women in the audience are nodding at me again, right? All that cooking, washing, cleaning, sweeping that goes into raising children that is completely disregarded by the mainstream economy because it doesn't show up in GDP, but it's absolutely underpinning to our well-being. So the fact, I think, the so fact there's no measure of that. Just sorry, just, just to be clear, because this is a kind of basic point. But there's no measure of unpaid work in the growth number. No, but if I, if I stay home and look after my kids and you stay home and look after your kids, it doesn't show up. Right. But if you pay me to look after your kids for the day and I pay you to look after my kids for the day, we've both contributed to right, GDP. So it's a little crazy. Yeah, but I do think there's uh, who wrote economics is really relevant for what they saw and didn't see. And if you think of most of the founding fathers of economics, they all had a few things in common. They're all men. They're all white. They're all wealthy. And they're all actually from what I call empire countries, like basically Britain and the US. Countries expanded overseas. And this has consequences for what they notice and what they don't notice, what they put at the center of their theories and what they don't. So one of the most important reasons to be cheerful in economics is that there are a lot more diverse voices coming in. Women, people from countries that were colonized, people who are spotting things that were missed out in last centuries and the centuries before theory. And we're getting a much more rounded perspective, which can only be a good thing. So are there other things we should be measuring apart from GDP? A few years ago, David Cameron made some mood noises about gross domestic happiness, which sounded a bit sort of woolly at the time. But is the value as an economist in, in trying to find other metrics apart from GDP? Well, I quite frankly think that money was the metric of the 20th, 20th century. It was in the 1930s that a guy called Simon Kuznets, an American economist, was first asked to measure the value of the economy's output in one number. He did, and it's what we now call GDP or national income. He said, by the way, the welfare of a nation can scarcely be measured with this number. Don't do that, would right. you? Because right. it doesn't measure unpaid care, it doesn't measure the value of the community, it only measures the flow of value, not the stocks you're chopping down. That got brushed aside because the, the temptation of this number is so great. In the 50s and the 60s, policymakers became obsessed with it. GDP became a goal in itself, to the point that still today, you can go to the richest country in the world you like, and the policymakers will tell you that the solution to our economic problems lies in more growth. There's something going on there. I think growth and, and income and money was the metric of the 20th century. I think, my big prediction, the 21st century economy will be measured in natural and social metrics. We will learn to talk a lot more about our impact of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or the amount of fertilizer we're putting in the soil, the health of the oceans, the health of the soil, the cleanliness of the air, but also the health of individuals and the level of education. We'll measure it not as one number, but as a dashboard, and we'll get better and better at using that. We use dashboards every time we drive a car. We can do this. Now, as the T-shirt says, there is this thing called the Jeffocracy, um, which is Jeff as a benevolent dictator, which I'm quite dubious about, personally. But you, you do know you invented it. Did I invent yes, it? Yes, you, you were the first. I thought you invented it. I didn't it. say the word uh, Jeff. Anyway, all right, all right, all right. I'm, I'm, sure, I'm sure you didn't. But d just tell us this. If you were called in by Jeff on his first day in office mm -hmm. and said, right, I'm making you Chancellor of the Exchequer or any position you want in government apart from Jeff's position, um, <laughs> what, uh, what, what would you do in your first... 100 days. So first I say, can I be not Chancellor of Exchequer, but Chancellor of Prosperity? Because I think we need to get, again, beyond this money focus to what is human well-being. And let's draw up a donut-shaped dashboard, perhaps, for the UK, where we can measure, are we meeting the needs of all people in terms of housing, education, health, income, work, political voice, gender equality? And are we, as the UK, coming back within the means of the planet? Because right now, the UK has a massive footprint, way, way beyond our fair share of the world's resources. So this is going to be our new dashboard. So what kind of policies can we put in place? 
I think to tackle the extraordinary levels of inequality that have opened up in this country over the last 40 years, we need to go beyond just, well, let's close down some tax havens and reopen child centres, right? Let's dive into those uh, Panama Papers and Paradise and, and stop the corruption that's going on, yes. But let's not only try to redistribute income, let's pre-distribute the sources of wealth creation. That sounds long, long-winded, so what do I mean? Let's think about how people can generate energy this century, because last century we had to buy it from coal mines and oil fields and, and gas pipelines. This century you can have a mini power station on the roof of every house. And in Germany, the government has actually, the policies led to around 40% of renewable energy that's generated in Germany is owned by citizens themselves. That is a far more distributive ownership of the assets of wealth creation. I can create my own electricity. Wow, never been possible in human history before. Let's have far more distributive access to ideas and invest in the open source movement and the global commons movement, which is popping up everywhere, not led by governments, but led by citizens, almost despite governments pursuing patents and copyrights. There's an alternative ideas movement. Let's create housing, right, that's far more affordable. Let's stop this extractive rents of major cities in the UK and actually enable communities through mutual ownership of mortgages, through social cooperatives of housing, to encourage that and enable that because we know it creates community. It doesn't just create a cluster of houses. People create connections between them that make places worth living in. Uh, let's enable employee-owned enterprises and cooperatives. The employee-owned enterprise is actually the fastest-growing form of enterprise in the UK, so it's already surging up from the bottom. We've got the community interest company. That's a new legal model you can incorporate your company in. But let's encourage that more. To me, these are all ways of distributing value far more equitably amongst people who help create it. Yeah, I, think people, I think people are voting for that. It's yeah. a lot Do, to get through did she get the job? lunch on the first day. Did she get the job? Absolutely, did she get the yeah. job? I've got one other question, which, and we'll go to the audience in a sec, which is about us. Another, like you two. Uh, well, not about us, about us collectively, which mm. is, isn't one of the issues about this getting off growth thing, and I know you're not anti-growth, mm. that growth drives higher standards of living or is one of the ways of driving higher standards of living. Sometimes it doesn't. And that we are in a culture where you need higher standards of... People ex- ex- expect higher standards mm-hmm. of living. One of the complaints of young people is that they're having a worse standard of living than their parents. Um, you need a higher standard of living to keep up and sort of succeed in the society, or that's how people perceive it. Mm-hmm. I mean, are you saying we get off that, or are you saying that's part of the picture? Because isn't that quite sort of central to this, to some of the pushback you'd get? So w- what I argue is we need to transform our idea of prosperity, and I show it with a donut. We need to thrive within the means of this living planet. And, I, and, and this growth question is key. And it's inconvenient. It's uncomfortable. And it's very uncomfortable for people working in mainstream politics because yeah. we have a political narrative that's so embedded. I play yeah. a game called Growth Bingo, where you listen to the politicians and you tick off the bingo words they use. Is it talking about green growth, sustainable growth, inclusive, smart, resilient, better, good, balanced growth, any kind of growth you want? I think I've got a full house. Oh, hey, well done, yeah. hey, right. <laughs> so we today have an economy that needs to grow, whether or not it makes us thrive, because we are institutionally locked into endless growth through the financial system, that demands a maximum rate of financial return, that puts pressure on all publicly traded companies to show they have growing sales, growing market share, growing profits every quarter. We are politically addicted to growth. No politician wants to lose their place in the G20 family photo. But as you just said, you have to grow to keep up 
with your neighbouring country to keep at that geopolitical table. And we are socially addicted to growth. We've lived through a century of mass consumerism, which fascinatingly was invented by a man called Edward Bernays, nephew of Sigmund Freud. And Bernays took his uncle's psychotherapy, which taps deep into our subconscious and our insecurities, and he realized he could turn it into very lucrative retail therapy. If he could convince us that, you know, buy a new car, it will make you important or sexy or admired. And we've lived through a century of some of the best minds in psychology being sucked into that industry and tapping into our deep unconscious. I kind of want to say, well done, Edward. Could you now join the other team and unhook us from this expectation of endless growth. Because we have economies that need to grow, whether or not they make us thrive. And I think the 21st century journey is to create economies that make us thrive, whether or not they grow. Because I love the fact that I'm sitting next to this tree. Look to nature, who's been thriving on this planet for 3.8 billion years. So a pretty good example to learn from if we want to stick around. In nature, growth is a wonderful, healthy phase. We say, I want my children to grow, my garden to grow. Yeah, but... Look again to nature, because nothing in nature grows forever. Things like trees or your children's feet, they grow, but then they grow up. And it's only by maturing that they can thrive forever. And we already understand this in our own bodies. If my friend were to go to the doctor who told her that she had a growth, we already understand that in a completely different way. We deeply understand that when something tries to grow forever within a thriving, healthy system... It's a threat to the whole. So my question back to mainstream economics, tricky though it feels when we're caught in this growth narrative, is if nothing in nature grows forever or destroys the system on which it depends when it tries to, why is it that we would imagine that our economies would be the one system that bucks this trend and succeeds by growing endlessly? Because all the evidence so far tells us it's not going well. We are destroying the integral form of the living planet on which we depend, and no country has yet shown it's possible to keep on pursuing this addiction to growth while coming back within planetary boundaries on anything like the scale that's necessary. Okay, I've got lots more questions, but let's go to the um, audience. I think there's hopefully a microphone. Who would like to begin? My name is uh, Richard Todd. Uh, I'm fully into that, that, that concept. But being a pensioner, um, um, relying on growth from a pension... It's just an indication, um, selfish indication, but it's an indication that we are tied in as, a, as an economy into growth for lots of different things, not just my pension. The changeover to go to a no-growth economy, um, that in itself uh, is going to be extremely difficult. And politically, well, you know, I'm a local politician, not a national politician, but I think it might be pretty difficult. Could you, could you... Good question. Bang on it. And the pension system is one example of the ways in which we're financially locked into institutions that expect demand and depend upon endless growth. So pension funds are invested. If you look at the sort of forecasting sheets predicated on, say, you know, it used to be 3.5% growth. That's a bit hopeful these days. So they tone it down. But it's predicated on a growing economy. So we invest this much and we can expect to get enough out at the end. That's a lock-in, because then when you don't have growth, the pension system fails. This is precisely one way in which it's designed. But the pension system, like all of our systems, are designed. And it's designed currently on the expectation and demand for growth. You could design a different kind of pension system that says, actually, we can't assume the economy is going to grow over a lifetime, so we need to save. 
save differently. I, I know, the way I think of it is a squirrel. If a squirrel buries nuts in the autumn and comes back to get them out in January, doesn't expect to find twice as many nuts in the hole. But we have created structures that we absolutely quite understandably expect to find twice as much income in that pot by the end because of the structures we have. I'm not a politician, which is why it's much easier for me to talk about this. And honestly, I think it's actually a responsibility to talk about this because people who are either in mainstream business today or mainstream politics today are locked into working within the structures and making them work now to get re-elected or to get to, to keep your job as the CEO. And it's other people whose jobs don't depend on that who actually should but stand back I, and ask a bigger question. Can I just come in? I mean, there yeah. are good forms of growth, aren't there? I mean, yeah. you know, investing in solar panels, yes. investing in renewable energy, um, investing in sustainable forms of production. I mean, there, there are... It's not like all growth is... And you're not saying all Absolutely. growth is bad. I'm not saying... I'm saying... It's the kind of growth it is. Yeah, I, we need an economy that thrives whether or not it grows. So, so let's take the, the renewable energy shift. This country has appallingly badly insulated houses, right? Our housing stock was like chucked exactly. up in the, you know, the Victorian era. Drafts running under every floorboard. So one of the obvious things to do is to invest in insulation. Yeah. That's going to create jobs. That's going to drive as GDP As part growth. of new housing, which we desperately need as well. Absolutely. So we invest in creating insulated housing stock. Boom to GDP. But then once the insulation's in, people are going to spend less money on electricity bills. So that's just one example of something that goes, GDP goes up, but then not as a result of investment. Put in a solar panel on the roof of your house, you pay a big whack up front, 7,000 or 5,000 or even 3,000 pounds, and then you've got free electricity. So to me, these are just examples of some really transformatory technologies and forms of organization that make it impossible to predict and expect that GDP will always rise as we move to an economy that's regenerative and distributive. I'm not against growth. I'm just not starting with being for growth. I'm for an economy that makes us thrive. And we, I think we have to unlock ourselves from the addiction to growth because when there's a choice between growth and the planet, we know who wins. When there's a choice between growth and an equitable society, we know who wins. Let's take some more questions. Lady at the front. Your What's team? your name? Oh, Pallavi Bradshaw. Hi. Um, I just wonder whether um, it's a slightly unfair scenario when you're looking at developing countries who obviously lag behind um, and now saying that we should all be, you know, obviously looking after the planet, which we all agree with, but obviously they'll say, well, the Western countries have had it good for all this time. What about us? Absolutely. So you remember I was saying nothing in nature grows forever, right? Things grow. Growth is a wonderful, healthy phase of life. Two of the fastest growing economies in the world today, people might be surprised, Ethiopia, and Nepal. They both have around 7% GDP growth a year. It used to be China. They had 10%. Now it's come down. So you grow, wonderful healthy phase. And if those countries have governments that wisely invest that return in health and education and housing and transport, it can be a brilliant investment in improving the living standards of people. So I'm not talking about those countries. In a way, I'm talking about today's high-income countries like here, like the Netherlands, like America, Australia, Canada which still want endless growth to solve all their problems and are still using way beyond their fair share of Earth's resources. So my message is primarily to the high-income countries, got to make way in terms of the global resource use for where the world's population is growing and where the world's countries are growing because they have every claim to live good lives as people here do. I think we had another couple of questions over here. Yep, should we take those two? Yes. My name's Corey. Hi, Corey. Um, so you mentioned earlier a little bit about how uh, you think that in the 21st century... What we will be trading, what will be seen as an important mark of 
how well a country or a nation or society is performing is uh, their uh, contribution to climate change or to other important environmental issues. I think obviously that sounds quite good, that, that sounds quite nice, but what we have here with GDP is it's very easy to make tokens of it, right? Very like easy to make... Tokens, to make tokens. So oh. if, if, I, um, if you babysit my child and I babysit yours and we both have kind of an indexable exchange there and we both pay tax on what we've done, it's very easy to say, okay, there's been an exchange there. An exchange has happened. When it comes to like, I have four cows, you have four cows, but mine's actually produced less methane than yours. How can we index that and how can we create tokens that are appropriate for that? Because it seems like that's a much harder problem to solve than the kind of problem of how much economy are you actually trading? Good question. Uh, how do you yeah. measure in a comprehensible way? And then at the back. Hi, I'm uh, Richard Dean. I'm a GP in Gloucester. Uh, that is a round of applause for being a GP <laughs> <laughs> in Gloucester. Have you got um, any ailments you want to ask? Yeah, definitely, about? definitely. The last time we had a GP. We'll see you, we'll, Jeff and I will see you later, Richard. <laughs> it gets, gets worse. Um, I, I did stand for the Green Party several times in Stroud, uh, where I moved from, from Hackney. I recently joined the Labour Party. And also, the last two years, I've been working very intensively in the ref with the refugee community, namely in refugee camps in Greece and in the famous jungle camp in Calais, which is now gone. Uh, I also have a daughter in Sweden who works and uh, lives in Sweden. So I've recently become quite au fait with what's going on in Sweden. And interestingly, in the relationship it has with with a huge number of um, immig immigrants that it's taken recently up to about 300,000. But they've recently started sending them all home again. So there's about 150,000 currently being deported back from Sweden. My question is, is how much of the growth rate in Europe is being fed by uh, waves immigration. of immigration and how much would be... Interesting question. Um, ...would be knocked back if that... Interesting if question, that which applies to Britain yeah, as well yeah, as yeah. to Sweden, obviously. Why don't you deal with that, the cows question, as you can put it that way, first? And I, and, and I think that... I, I was thinking that as you were talking, which is, you know, the thing about GDP is, is incredibly simple and simplistic, basically. How do we get over the fact... As Corey said, uh, that um, you know, e the the measuring these other things is more complex. Because I think this is going to be the century of big data, and we learned to measure GDP last century. And actually, we kind of included things in it that could be measured. So it was kind of cut the other way around. This century. We're going to have an internet of things. We're going to have an internet of living things. People are able to measure the way that trees breathe. There's going to be a satellite, I would say, in, in the sky within five years that tracks where methane is being released and will then hold those companies to account and be able to... There's your how answer, yeah. Corey. Well, but even, let's go closer to the cow. The cow satellite. Because the, <laughs> it's the cow, so methane... Can already... I want that cow satellite now. Okay. No, you're going to get cow genes. Right. Cow farm uh, genes. I don't want cow genes personally. No, 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 you're going to have cow genes. Because methane, which is cow burps, yeah. can already be captured. It gets turned into a polymer. It gets turned into a plastic. It can be turned into chairs. It can be turned into a fibre. I've Got met I've met designers met who are going to make cow jeans, burps into cow chairs. burp jeans. So actually, it's when we think about a circular economy. A lady saying cow burp jeans, how fabulous! She's yeah, there we are. Somebody who's willing to buy. But when you think about circular economy, there's this wonderful expression. There's no such thing as waste. Waste is just a resource in the wrong place. 
And once we get ingenious and start realizing genius. that all of the... Thank you. You got the job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> then you start to realize, capture that methane because it's destroying the planet when it's releasing the sky, but it, capture it, turn it into a polymer, and it can be used again and again. And then somebody will pay you for it. So we've got blockchain, right? Last century, they didn't have blockchain. We've got... Oh, God, you better explain blockchain. I don't understand blockchain. We've, you haven't we got, got time. I know, okay. Think of a blockchain. It's like a, a chain of beads on a necklace so that you can trace back where every, every transaction that this has been through, which means you can create social money that can only be used for social good. You can design money with memory, with a but, history. Okay, but can I ask a question about this? Because I think Corey's question is sort of... You know, money is the sort of thing you can exchange. I mean, are we saying that every farmer's cow is going to have to be have a sort of methane chip telling us how much... I mean, in other words, are we going to have to have a big state intrusion to work out the methane that the cows are emitting as well as turning the methane into genes that the lady in the front row, can, not the third row, can buy? Do you see what I mean? I don't I mean, know that that's going to be a big state. I think these, right. these technologies are decentralised. By the way, many cows already have chips in them. Right. To tell farmers whether they've got the okay. right level of hormone. Okay, or whether, fine. Right. So what are we going to yeah. use this digital okay. internet of things for? It's going to happen anyway. And to me, it's a question of does it happen and just to exaggerate the vested interests that are already reaping the, the gains of the economy? Or do we actually create one that's far more distributive and actually embrace the fact that we need to live within the, li- the, the means of and the And it's turned technology into a positive rather than a negative, scary thing. We can. It doesn't happen automatically. Technology, it can be captured or it can be harnessed for good. And to me, we've got to understand it. We've got to look at the positive ways it can be used and make sure it's governed in a way that turns it positive. Because if you don't do that, sit back, you can be sure as hell that those who know how to exploit technology for their own use will turn it. And that's what we've seen with the internet and Facebook and Google, and they're capturing it. Everyone's woken up to that now, and we want governance that turns it around and actually makes that technology work in our interests. And do you want to deal with the doctors, the good doctors question um, about immigration? So, really interesting question about one way in which countries are um, addicted to growth is they often realize that we need to have a growing population. And some countries solve that by saying, we welcome migrants. Others solve that by, like, uh, France and Japan saying, we will pay women to have children. We know that globally there are enough of us in the world. And in fact, there's, there's right, three billion at least more coming. We're going to be 10 billion this century. I think one of the best ways to enable the world's population is indeed to open doors to others, to enable them to have better lives here. One of the fastest ways to slow down population growth rate is to get people out of poverty. You invest in child's health, children's education and girls' empowerment. So it's really, it's such an important question because it's deeply connected to the migration question, which is deeply connected to culture and politics and people's unvoiced feelings about whether they feel threatened or whether they feel welcoming. We need to connect all these conversations and think not only in terms of a nation's thriving and shutting its doors and we're going to shut the doors and thrive in here alone. No, no, no. We need to thrive as a globe and, and recognize the needs of other countries and of other people. I just wanted to finish by asking you, how far outside the mainstream are these ideas? Are they starting to filter through? It was always odd to me that after the 2008 mm. crash that you didn't suddenly hear these different ways of structuring things and running economies, and it almost feels like there's been a, a decade delay on that. I mean, do you see these ideas entering into the mainstream anytime soon? So when I talk to today's 
high school students or university students, they say, this is what I want to be learning. This is why I studied economics. And the syllabus still says, welcome me to, to economics, here's supply and demand. And, and they can't believe they're still being taught this old narrow way. I think, if I put it very simply, I think mainstream economics courses are almost the slowest place to embrace it. There are some innovations going on. But where I see these ideas really getting picked up are people who work at the front lines of the economy. So urban designers who are designing 21st century cities, which is where humanity's economies get lived out. They're all over this. Of course we need to create cities that are distributive of opportunity. Of course we need to create cities that work within the means of the living world. Let's put these ideas into practice. Really progressive companies have often actually approached me and said, oh, we've actually sometimes had strategic meetings sitting with this picture of the donut on the table. Like what, can you say who they are just for people in the audience? Patagonia, Unilever, uh, and they say a uh, fantastic Swedish sportswear company called Houdini. We are using this to think about how do we put pressure on the planet and how do we bring us back in. So I know that there are people who are designing 21st century cities. There are people who are setting up 21st century enterprises that are driven by conviction, not starting with the drive of profit, but conviction, who want to put these ideas in practice and already doing it. And I think 21st century economics is going to be practice first, theorized later. So it starts out in the real economy and it's bubbling up from under, which is the best place it can come from. Well, look, we've heard it all. Oh, uh, from the favorite donut, you promised us. Oh, yeah, what is your favorite donut? Well, my favourite donut's a conceptual one. Oh. <laughs> that is a great economist answer. We've, look, we've heard it all. We've heard about donut economics. We've heard about cow methane jeans. No, Lady in the third row is desperate to buy a pair. Maybe you can see her afterwards. Um, Kate Rayworth, thanks so much for joining Thank us. Thank you very much. Thank you. Kids. Thank you. That was, that was brilliant. That was actually brilliant. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard. But now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. And here to pitch some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful, please welcome Rachel Paris. Hi. Hello. Hello. I just sort of like did a weird thing with my arm. I didn't know if I was going to stand up and hug like you. This. And it just went like that. It was a, Let's, yeah. We'll hug afterwards. Yeah. There's no need to do it now and take up these people's time. You're quite um, right. What a year you've had. Like, so things have been going great for you for a while. And then this last year, it's just gone nuts with the MASH report, specifically your bits going viral this is something that couldn't have happened 10 or 15 years ago if you were on the day-to-day -day, for yeah. example this wouldn't have happened but you, you these things have been seen all around the world yeah that's true it is that it's that viral quality which is something none of us really predicted obviously you know we all know that things do go viral now some things but that isn't something that was ever as far as I know uh the intention you know we just made these 
pieces as part of... And it was about Piers Morgan, the one that particularly went viral in his interview with Donald Trump. Actually, no. Um, I did do one about Piers Morgan, and that did uh, get a lot of attention. But the one that actually went more viral, with like sort of 40 million hits, and it was the first one that that happened to, was the sexual harassment one. Um, <laughs> the reason right. I'm slightly defensive about that is that that's the one that's much closer to my heart um, and that I feel I had more of a right. personal stake in, whereas the Piers Morgan one, um, you know, I absolutely stand by. But yeah. uh, that actually wasn't as popular. It just got sort of talked right. about uh, by the press more. Well, we would be happy with 40 million hits, wouldn't we? Yeah. Yeah, that, that would do this week. <laughs> well, we, we should all go and watch it, yeah. for those who haven't. So you've brought along some ideas which could be potential reasons to be cheerful. Um, yeah. What's, what's your first one? I'll, I'll kick off with this one. Um, I feel a bit embarrassed going after an economist <laughs> because everything that she's saying obviously makes real world sense. No, 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 we want it, we want it, come on. Okay. I've made notes about her talk, by the way. I felt like I was at a university lecture, <laughs> yeah. I was learning so much. I've drawn a little donut and everything. So I think that proves that I definitely understand everything yeah. she said. <laughs> <laughs> So my first one, it sounds trivial, but I think it's not. Women's toilets to be legislated for how big the building is, how many women's toilets there should be in that building and access to them should be not free for the building to decide. It should be like a rule that you have to have this many women's toilets. Um, so I was watching like a TED talk about architecture and it was sort of started off with like stats about women's toilets and the fact that there's never enough and you have these vast, you know, we all know that like the women's queue is always four times longer than the men's if there even is one. Um, and the reason that is, is because so many buildings, the, the world of architecture has for so long been completely dominated by men. For women, sometimes you have to open the door and there isn't enough space to the wall. You have to open the door, you have to get your leg round there, because and the toilet's there, and then you have to slide your leg in like this to get into the cubicle. Now, here comes the interesting bit. On the side here, you've got a sanitary bin this big, which has been wedged into the side of the toilet. The toilet seat is too small, and you have to sit with your thigh resting on the side of the sanitary bin. Is this true? Yes. I mean, that is not good. That is not no, good. That is not good. So there's no, and I often think, if I was... So if equal I was access for women's toilets. Equal access for women's toilets. I think there have to be... It's not being done well, and there should be more rules about it. What are, now, all the men in the audience will think that they can't possibly vote against this. So uh, who, which women in the audience support this idea? Is there anyone who's against it? No. Uh, well, I think you've got, you've got 100% support. Yeah, absolutely. This is North Korean style support uh, for your women's toilet idea. So I think it definitely, okay, it definitely okay. is a runner. Um, okay, next one. I don't know how this would work, but I really feel like I want it. For the internet to be turned off for two hours every day. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So this is like parents and screen time, but for grown-ups and presumably... State control. Yeah. And when yeah. I was thinking about it, I was like torn between whether it should be... You could choose your two hours when it would be, or I thought maybe it would be better for humanity if it was... I mean, time zones apart, if it was the same two hours for everyone, a bit like a bank holiday. So right. like when a bank holiday happens... You know, it's a rest, and it's yes, it's inconvenient, and everyone's a bit like, oh god, I need some milk, and everywhere's closed. But you just accept it. But the French, some French companies, or I think by I think some French companies blocked emails at certain times of the weekend. Really? Yeah, from a certain time on a Friday night to a certain time on a Monday morning, so they couldn't get through the the uh, the company's email server. Yeah. I mean, that's the sort of mini that's version the kind of, of that. Mini version, yeah, that kind of thing, but just on a grander, more 
frankly melodramatic scale. Are you are you a big tweeter? Yeah, I feel like I have to be now. It doesn't come naturally to me because I don't do those. You know, some comedians do like pithy little puns and stuff like that, and that's what I love reading. But I haven't got. You don't look at your notifications, do you? Yeah, I do. Yeah, but I've got really strict restrictions on them. After I did the picture of Trump and Piers Morgan, I got a. My, well, I wasn't well protected at all because I've never done anything like that before. So I had people emailing me. I got someone on Facebook messaging me saying, you are a pig. Karma will find you. Better get that mammogram early. <gasps> uh, so that was the kind of stuff I was getting around that time. Um, and you can imagine the notifications on Twitter are often much more easy access, actually, than Facebook. Um, so... Uh, I now have quite tight controls. I check my notifications, but I only get, I think what they're called high quality. You know, it's interesting because somebody said during the Eurovision Song Contest, which Jeff and I were not watching together, but watching part of it remotely. It sounded a bit defensive, didn't yes. it? Yeah. Um, I asked you if uh, you wanted to FaceTime while we were doing yeah, it. Yeah, I know. Um, but somebody said this is what the Twitter was like before it got nasty. Yeah. Mm. And there was a certain sense to that, actually. You know, Absolutely, people yeah. just making sort of yeah. nice funny comments about but with it, you know the ukrainian sort of entry or whatever you know what i mean yeah it does feel like twitter now feels like a cesspit uh, yes a cesspit yeah. and also somewhere where it was invented to be able to break down that barrier of what you want to say to be able to speak very freely and now i think on either side of the political spectrum it feels like Shouty you're pants. really not free to say yeah. anything of all the space yeah. on the internet to say something, it feels like the one place where whatever you say, you will get shouted yeah, at. Yeah, I agree. And frankly, threatened. I agree. My third idea is not a sentence, it's just one word. Okay. Jigsaws. Okay. <laughs> so, a few weeks ago, I did my first jigsaw in, since I was a child. And it, Big round of applause for that, <laughs> come on. Thank you. What was it a jigsaw of? It was a thousand pieces. Wow. wow. Even bigger round of applause. For <laughs> of an impressionist Renoir painting. Wow. Very hard. No third round of applause. No, don't sit down. <laughs> um, but it was so calming and like in a like in a way brainless and calming and nice and no one really does jigsaws anymore. I know some people do and I commend you and I'm one of you but the in order to fill that gap of constant busyness and stress and what's going on in the world um, I think that there should be state-given jigsaws to every house. What prompted you to do the jigsaw? Um, what was it? I think it began as a joke with me and my boyfriend were like spending a lot of time at home. We were joking about how sort of homely we were getting and we were like, oh, should we, should we do a jigsaw like the old? And he ordered one off the internet and we chose it off the internet. So it sort of began as like, ha, 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 we're such an old married couple. Um, and then we were like, this is That's the best good. thing in life. Okay. <laughs> Libraries. Libraries should do jigsaws. Yeah. Do you think? Yes. I totally, yeah, they yeah. totally should. I think it's a, it's a lovely idea. It yeah. taps into the mindfulness thing. Definitely. Well, Definitely. Yeah. yeah, just sort of stopping. We're, we're buying it. Yeah. Great. Oh, I, I'm doing, I'm really pleased. You are. Thanks. Did you have another one? Um, so I've got one more, um, which is based on, um, you were asking me in the, in the green room yeah. about, um, I think all of us, we live in a time where like, everyone has maybe different levels of like anxiety and depression and I think it's very hard to talk about the labels of that but basically everyone's sometimes really sad and uh, needs help uh, coping um, and so I was remember so I've worked for years and years in a primary school I teach uh, music there and uh, 
they have uh, what they call a buddy system. Now, I don't know how many primary schools do this. I don't know if all primary schools do this, but our primary school did, where as soon as you come into preschool, you get assigned like someone four years older than you just to help you out when you come to the school. And it's adorable. Well, one thing is just adorable. They go around holding hands. Aww. And you hear these seven-year-olds saying how cute the four-year-olds are. <laughs> it's like, oh, bless. But I think maybe we should all be assigned a buddy when we're born. <laughs> Somewhere uh, in the world. It's a brilliant randomly idea. Assigned, randomly assigned. Like, as soon as you get your little hospital tag. Um, and it should be random. And, of course, you, it could be someone completely unrelated to you, completely different life, completely different country, and it would be a challenge for them to be each other's buddy at first. So it's a bit like twinning towns, but twinning people. Yeah, it's a bit like a pen pal system, but, but see, more than a pen pal, there'd be a lifelong support. It's so interesting this, because we did, um, we did an interview with the New Zealand Prime Minister, and yeah. she was part of a secret centre, a, a New Zealand-wide secret centre, which is a rather one-off what? version. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, she got assigned two people, or two people got assigned her. But anyway, she was part of this nationwide secret Santa thing yeah. and bought somebody a present, somebody bought her a present. Yeah. And so it's a sort of more continuous version of this. Yes, and it's exactly. Just, just one person who you have to talk to and who's there for you, no matter how different. And, and, and if, if they're similar to you, that's great. You've got stuff in common. And if they're completely different, then that's even better because then you learn about someone else's way of life. I really like that. Jeff, would you, do, you, do you buy it? Yeah, as long as I don't have to be part of it. <laughs> I think it's fine. <laughs> I want an exemption. Um, Rachel, thank you so much for coming and doing this Thanks, with us. I had such a nice time and I learned so much about economics. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel Paris, thank you so thank much. Thank you. Reasons to be cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So um, we should do some thank yous. We should. So... Um, Thanks to Emma Corsham, who produces our podcast with Backup and Research from Alex Weissbrice and Lindsay Todd. James Deacon made our idents. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. Ed Seed composed the music and our artwork was designed by... Emily Power. With Backup and... Did you do Backup and Research? Yeah, I did that, oh, you yeah. did, right, right. We'd like to thank our brilliant guests, wouldn't we? Yes. I'd like to thank Kate Rayworth, who I thought was brilliant. You should go out and buy her book, Donut Economics. And thanks very much to Rachel Paris, and uh, her show is fantastic. And I think we should thank who the, How the Light Gets In for having hosted us. Big round of applause for them, please, ladies and gentlemen. And also... We, we should, should plug should, the show, I think. We should, uh, we should thank the late Leonard Cohen for uh, writing such a fantastic lyric. Exactly. We, we should... Uh, musical reference went over my head. We should... Uh, he was a singer-songwriter. Yeah, no, I knew that. Yeah. Uh, he's been Jeff Lloyd. He's been Ed Miliband. And these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Thank you very much. Yeah.